I'm happy to introduce Ms. Michelle Lavander. Michelle Lavander is the founding director of the California Endowment Health Journalism Fellowships at USC's Annenberg School for Communication, founding editor of reportinghealth.org and co-editor and publisher of Boyle Heights Beat, El Pulso de Boyle Heights, a bilingual community newspaper. Please give a warm welcome to our moderator, Michelle Lavander. Good evening. Thanks so much for joining us here tonight. I think you'll be in for a really stimulating discussion. We have some great panelists here. We're here to discuss the state of rural health care in California. And uh, I want to just set the scene a little bit, and then I'm going to introduce our panelists. We'll have some discussion among the panelists and then have time for questions and answers from all of you. Let me start out by asking, though, how many of you here are connected with health care in your professional lives? Thank you. For those of you who raised your hand, uh, this will be very familiar. Uh, rural California has only a fraction of the medical providers of the state cities, uh, where there are five times as many doctors per patient. And even the valley's biggest cities, uh, such as Fresno, suffer from shortages. And the one that is the most daunting is for specialists, especially for uninsured patients or those who are on Medicaid, uh, Medi-Cal in California, the health insurance plan for the poor. And the problems for the poor have only worsened during this economic crisis, with more and more residents here losing insurance. And all of this inevitably impacts the health profile of the valley. And the situation is particularly bleak in some of the poor and more isolated towns, which tend to be, uh, you know, pretty much uh, farm workers live there, towns like Arvin or Weedpatch and Curtin County, where, according to a recent study by the Central Valley Health Policy Institute, um, most people make a living through agriculture. Half of them are earning under 15000 Another 30% are earning less than 25000 25% of children haven't seen a doctor in the last year, and even more haven't made it to a dentist. The food bank is the most popular social service provider in these towns. And, you know, this is not all just about healthcare services, some of the issues confronting these residents are really about health, too. And health, of course, touches on many other things, such as the quality of your housing, your work conditions, your access to education, and so on. And um, I don't know how many of you here are aware, but there's a, a big uh, initiative going on in the Valley to study and try and improve some of these conditions. And tomorrow, a new report is coming out, uh, issued by the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies in partnership with a number of local think tanks that tries to quantify some of these environmental health conditions. And uh, some of the things that they talk about um, are things like the rate of premature death, which means people, the years lost before age uh, 65, uh, needlessly, preventively. And this study finds that it, that rate is dub, uh, nearly double um, in the poor um, zip codes of the valley uh, than the higher income zip codes. This report also took a look at life expectancy, comparing it um, across different zip codes and found that the variation between poorer and richer uh, zip codes, which often correlates with you know education levels and access to care and a host of other things, is as, as wide as 21 years. In other words, that you could live 21 years uh, longer in more affluent neighborhoods of the San Joaquin Valley than in its poorest uh, towns. So um, it's, it's all uh, pretty stunning, and it would be easy to just think that this is a problem for the poor, but I think that 
as everyone who lives here knows, th these are really issues of a shared destiny, really. And uh, this really um, hits home at times when anyone has a medical crisis. And of course, there's always a, a moment in everybody's life or everyone's family life when that's the play, when that takes place, and that's when these issues, such as the doctor shortages, the the vast distances that have to be traveled to get to a medical provider in an emergency, or even for help with a chronic condition, hit home for um, for everyone. So I think that in in some ways we're not just going to be talking about healthcare for the poor tonight, but also really what is the safety net and what are the exciting opportunities for bridging these vast dif uh, distances um, here in the valley for everybody. Um, so let me just introduce our panelists and, and we'll get underway. We're gonna hear from Rebecca Plevin. She's a community health reporter for Vida en el Valle, a bilingual <coughs> newspaper in the, in the central San Joaquin Valley. She's received the George Gruner Award for Meritorious Public Service and Journalism and honors from the National Association of Hispanic Publications and the California Newspaper Publishers Association. And she blogs at Harvesting Health. And if you haven't seen that, I, I really highly recommend it. It's a, a great um, blog that she has. Um, Herman Spetzler has made a great journey here. Um, was it 10 hours that you've been traveling or something? Yes. So I think it, his journey here in and of itself says something about the distances. Um, he, he lives um, in Eureka. Is that right? Uh, yes. And, and um, he's uh, CEO of the Humboldt Open Door Community Health Centers. Um, and he's held that post for 35 years. And uh, the health centers got their start as a small healthcare storefront, and today has 10 clinics uh, that serve several counties um, in a region the size of Connecticut um, along the Pacific Coast. Uh, they have about 50,000 patients. And uh, at one time or another, a number of them are interacting with their providers through telemedicine. And I know that that's gonna be one of the things that he sees as, as one of the great um, areas of advances. And he's gonna talk about practical telemedicine with us, things that could be done and replicated in other uh, clinics elsewhere, including here. And then, and then we're gonna hear from Dr. Marcia Sablon, who's a family physician who's been in private practice with her husband in Firebaugh, California for almost three decades. The two run a rural health clinic and see about 60 patients a day. Most are farm workers. Many don't have insurance or on uh, Medi-Cal or Medicare. Um, they have an almost like mini, I mean, ER sort of makes it sound fancier than it is, but a, a room set up to deal with emergencies just because um, of the distances around here. Um, so they end up dealing with some pretty serious cases um, where there's no other, you know, hospital type center nearby. Um, she's also somebody who really believes in taking health into the community. She helped to establish a farmer's market. She's the, uh, she served on the fire, Firebaugh community as a longtime city council member, mayor from 1989 to 1999. Mm -hmm. And since 2007, she's been a uh, first five uh, county commissioner working on early childhood <coughs> development. Um, I stopped by Dr. Sablon's clinic on my way up here from Los Angeles and had a chance to talk to her caseworker uh, whose name is Olga. And we were talking about the doctor shortages, particularly for specialists, and, and here's some of the numbers she gave me. Uh, right now, for one of the patients in Dr. Sablon's clinic to see a dermatologist, the next available appointment is in 2013. Um, they have a patient who has gallstones right now, which is a very painful condition, um, even though you, you could die from it. You're not gonna die from it tomorrow, but you, you wouldn't want to live with it for a long time. And the uh, quickest appointment they can get is on May 3rd. 
And then um, orthopedics, they're in trouble because um, uh, Oscar Sablon, uh, Dr. Marshall Sablon's husband, had a great golfing relationship with an orthopedic, uh, orthopedic specialist who would agree to see their Medi-Cal patients, and he retired in December. Um, so I think um, what we'll start with is, is Dr. Sablon talking about what, what does it mean for your patients um, to not have the, the, the level of uh, and the you know, number of doctors we'd like to see in, in the region? Well, um, it means expense. I'll talk just about a common everyday case of gallbladder disease. We have an ultrasound in our office, so we're able to make that diagnosis. But that person, uh, if they have private insurance, probably will have their gallbladder taken out within a matter of a week or two at the longest. A person with Medi-Cal, depending on the type of Medi-Cal, the HMO Medi-Cal, probably will be closer to a couple months and require several trips back and forth to Fresno. That's one thing I was emphasizing when, when I spoke with Mich Michelle, is that um, that trip from Fireball to Fresno, to have a blood test, to have a pre-op, to have this or that, is 100 miles round trip, usually winds up costing that person about $100, including the gas and whoever's gonna drive them to the thing. So. Our thought always is to try to help minimize the number of trips that that, that simple procedure, well, I shouldn't say it's a surgery, but the preparation for that, that surgery would take. Um, a person with no insurance, like the, um, the client that uh, Michelle is talking about, that person will be months and months before they can get an appointment in the surgery clinic in our safety net clinic. So it, like Michelle said, everything depends on, on your situation. And have you run into situations where um, you felt that patients were in a life-threatening situation because of, uh, you know, difficulty accessing a, a specialist? Pretty much on um, a very frequent basis, unfortunately. I shared with Michelle the story of a, of a patient. This was a 30-year-old woman who had been married for 10 years and with primary infertility, just dying to be pregnant and dying to have a baby. Um, when she came in and the happiest day, she had a positive pregnancy test. She also mentioned to me about a lump that she found on her uh, leg. And I'll make a really long story short, she definitely was pregnant and she had a sarcoma growing in, on her leg. And she wound up uh, admitted to the hospital because that sarcoma, by the time that we were getting the appointment for her with the oncology department, which at that time had a half day in the, in the safety net, half day per week for Fresno County in the oncology department. By the time we got the appointment, she was in respiratory distress from the spread of that tumor to her lungs, wound up in the emergency room uh, in the hospital, in a hospital that couldn't deal with her case because she was pregnant and chemotherapy and pregnancy don't mix. So to make a long story short, she stayed in the hospital almost two months waiting to be transferred, waiting to get some form of medical care, medical insurance, so that she could be transferred to a hospital that could deal with that complex situation and wound up dying uh, of that situation at 30 years old. So that story will always stick in my mind when I see any part of her family, I'm ashamed of her, of our medical care situation that, and no one could say that she would have been saved from that serious tumor that she had, but at least she would have had a chance. And Rebecca, you, you spend a lot of time out in the field um, looking at um, various um, challenges for folks trying to get um, health care. 
maybe talk a little bit about um, what you've seen um, when it comes to transportation, a, a topic that Dr. Sablon has, has touched upon. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard from talking to doctors that transportation is just a huge issue for, for people in rural communities. I spoke with one doctor who talked about a woman who was having contractions. She was pregnant, having contractions, and was in San Joaquin. And she was alone and didn't have a car, didn't have transportation, so ended up calling an ambulance to take her to the nearest hospital in Selma, which I think is a trip of about an hour. And when they asked, why did you take an ambulance to get here, she said, I didn't have transportation and I was scared. So transportation is a really big issue in that sort of situation. And then I've also heard about it, I did a story about school nurses recently, and um, you'll hear from school nurses in the rural areas that you know they'll, they'll find that a student has trouble seeing the board and needs glasses, and they'll realize months later that child still hasn't gotten glasses because they just didn't have transportation to get to the eye doctor. And nurses will actually pull, you know, they'll, they'll take bus tokens from their own pocket to give to families so they can get to, um, to see an eye doctor. So I think transportation is just, it's a big barrier. I know that there are clinics that are, that are do, trying to make that easier. There are some clinics that will bring specialists into the clinic to avoid people having to travel to see a specialist, but it's still a big, big barrier. And, you know, health policy also can make it harder or easier for people to access care. How, how would you describe where things stand in Fresno now, and what are, are things getting better or worse when it comes to access to health care? I mean, I, I guess what I've heard is I think there are, I think there's a lot of, we were talking earlier, I think there's a lot of community clinics. There's a, some great clinic networks in the Valley, and there's, mo there's a lot of points of care, access points, but it's really a question of can people get there? Are they, how, how far are they traveling to get to that place? Can they afford to take off of work to get to the clinic? So... What about um, the Healthy Kids program? Where, where does that stand and how, how is that affecting um, what you're seeing about people's willingness to go to the doctor and maybe even for, for you, Dr. Sablon, what, what you're doing with those, those, um, those kids? Maybe you could explain Healthy, healthy Kids a, sure. a, a little bit. The Healthy Kids program was a, a child's insurance program that was intended for the children who didn't, who didn't qualify for state-funded healthcare programs. So if they didn't qualify for healthy families or Medi-Cal due to either their immigration status or their family income. And so it was, it was a program that was allowing you know, undocumented children or other children to get healthcare. And that program did lose its funding last year. And so that leaves a, a section of, of children without, um, without medical insurance. Mm -hmm. And I, I was talking to Michelle about what we've been able to do as a stopgap measure. The Medi-Cal itself has the gateway program for kids that are lacking in immunization or in physicals. And so that child, who, even though they walk in with an emergency, can actually qualify for the gateway program that gives them full scope Medi-Cal, but for one month. So whatever has to be done with them has to be done within, within that month. Right now, we're in a situation where California has really taken the lead when it comes to implementing some of the um, provisions of the Affordable Care Act, and um, one of them is that counties have the opportunity to sign up for expanding Medi-Cal access, and one of the things that seems really fascinating about the Valley is that um, there's two adjoining counties who have taken really different paths, and... Um, um, Rebecca, I don't know how much you've reported on this or just what your thoughts are on, on, on how the fates of Fresno, which opted not to take this, um, this uh, advantage of this, and, and Kern, which did, uh, how it's played out. And this would allow people 
who is it up to 134% of poverty, is that right, um, to, to get Medi-Cal insurance and including categories of people like single men and women um, who are typically uh, exempt from Medi-Cal? Right. So we're, um, that's the low-income health program, and it was, it was supposed to be a program um, that would expand Medi-Cal between now and 2014 when the Affordable Care Act is implemented. And it would have allowed people, like Michelle was saying, who didn't have, who didn't qualify for Medi-Cal to, to gain health insurance. And that would prevent people, you know, from, uh, it would allow them to get preventative care for their chronic conditions rather than landing in the emergency room which, as the only place they could get medical care. But the uh, Fresno County Board of Supervisors did have to turn down, had to turn down that program in September. Um, and they, they, there was, it was a complex mixture of financial reasons and whatnot, but as Michelle was saying, in Kern County, that program has been going on for a while, and it had actually been very successful in, um, in expanding health insurance for people who didn't have it before. So, The, the other element of the um, health insurance reform that many people are talking about is the enormous emphasis it's going to put on primary care physicians, and I, I've seen estimates that we're going to need, you know, uh, thousands upon thousands more graduates nationally, uh, not only uh, doctors, but also nurses, and even Herman was talking about even like a medical receptionist who can do electronic medical records and take advantage of some of the technologies. And um, it's, it's something that we're grappling with nationally, uh, but I'm wondering uh, where all of you think we're going um, with these pipeline issues um, in, in rural areas in California. Herman, did you want to comment on that? Well, um, I... I want to start off with just a two-minute geography about rural in California because I think that most of us uh, don't realize what rural really is. I think that Californians, the nation, and the world thinks of California as Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Francisco. Uh, the reality is that uh, three-quarters of California is rural. And of that three-quarters... 50% is what's called frontier. The definition of frontier is less than 11 people per square mile. To put that into perspective, 60% of everybody in California, of the 37 million that live here, live below the Tehachapis. So basically the LA Basin and San Diego, and, and we all know that everybody lives between the ocean and San Bernardino, and then after that we're back out into frontier. So. Uh, between that 22 million that live in that portion of Southern California and the 10 million that are the greater Bay Area up to Sacramento Delta, we've got the vast majority of California. As difficult as transportation issues are in the Central Valley, they are exponentially more complex as you go east. When you get into the backbone of the Sierras, uh, or the Siskiyous, you begin to see that um, the geography is in time and distances in time rather than in miles. And a lot of it has to do with climate. The reality is that even if you live in Tahoe, which is relatively urban, there are certain times of the year if you need health care, you're going to go to Minden, Carson City, or Reno before you come to Sacramento purely because that's the leeward side of the mountain and less snow. Uh, 
The reason I bring that up is because it adds another dimension. Not only is there the geographic barrier, but there's the political barrier on how do you get access health care when where you access health care is in, in a different political jurisdiction than that you live in. It's not just going from one county to another, it's going from Nevada to California, and those two states argue who is responsible for what. California in length, uh, it was interesting that they brought up where I live because if I want to drive here, it's about uh, an 11-hour drive. Um, and I'm an hour and a half from the Oregon border. So if you take California late on its side, you get from L.A. to Denver, which I think is a visual that most people don't often think of. So it's, it's important to understand the complexity. The Central Valley has its own unique um, issues, lots of them having to do with uh, the agricultural base that is in the Central Valley. The Central Valley is run by mountains where timber, uh, some agriculture, mining, uh, fisheries, and the alike are the rural uh, job creators. So what has happened in our area is that we pushed early on to become uh, capable of using telemedicine as a tool for uh, getting over the mountains uh, and getting that care that we need or that connection to urban areas where the centers of excellence are always going to be purely by the numbers game. So uh, we are now tied in and have for 15 years been using telemedicine pro more progressively all the time uh, into UCSF, UC Davis, uh, we provide we, ourselves both as a hub and a, a spoke. And what that means is that what we do is that we get the local specialists in our area and we buy half-day times from them in a separate clinic space that's a telehealth and visiting specialist center. So for instance, a, a local neurology group, for instance, um, the, the survivability of, of, of many medical practices based on uh, call, to be very honest about it. And so very often in rural areas, you don't have enough population to create a call pool that makes life sane. Call pools tend to be a minimum of four individuals because that either is one week a month or one day a week and a weekend a month uh, kind of a call system, which is the standard sort of way to look at it. What we've been able to do with telemedicine is to go to groups and create virtual critical mass so that we can go to the neurology group and say, you guys only have enough of a practice to bring in a half-time person. We'll buy the other half-time and we'll share those skills all over the state. So we provide care from Eureka to Brawley. Uh, we provide it to El Turis. We are all over the state because no longer is the geography an, an, an issue and the access uh, to specialists is uh, really difficult. So I bring that up because it's an economic development opportunity that this next generation of medical providers will have at their fingertips. They will use it just like the cell phones. Remember, we used to have bags and had them mounted in our cars and all sorts of things. And now, um, 
I can, uh, in our clinic, we are spread over an area the size of Connecticut. Uh, like we said, uh, we do a lot of talent sharing. I have four pediatricians, but I have 10 sites, and there are pediatric issues all the time. Any one of our mid-level practitioners or family practitioners can tie into uh, the telemedicine system and first use the talent we have within ourselves, and if we need to go further, let me give you one example of how far this technology has been able to take us. Is We had a local pediatrician who was actually part of a rural health clinic and not a private uh, practice, had a little girl, eight years old, who had an undiagnosed seizure disorder. And it was beyond the skill set in our rural area to really do that kind of uh, analysis. We tied her into what are two of the best uh, pediatric neurologists that specialize in uh, seizure disorder, one at UCLA and the other one at the Burrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix. And we had a three-way conversation between the local pediatrician, those two experts, the little girl, and her grandmother, who is the caretaker of that young lady. That would have been almost impossible without that technology. The resources for that child weren't there to, to go and travel, uh, getting access to them. So I guess what I'm saying is that there are a couple of ways to look at where we are. We can focus totally on the woe of how poor the distribution of healthcare resources is between urban and rural. Or we can begin to look at what opportunities do we have to go ahead and use modern technology. I can use my iPhone and get into my electronic medical record through a portal, which I do regularly. I have not called the clinic for a prescription refill or communicated with my doc in any other way than technologically, whether it's on my computer or on my cell phone. I think this will expand exponentially and that next generation will not only, they will see it as such an integral part of their practice of medicine that uh, it won't even seem fancy. I'll stop there. But you know, <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I want to ask you about in connection with the telemedicine um, is, you know, both, both you and Dr. Sablon have mentioned to me that uh, many of the doctors you work with have come out of something called the National Health Service Corps. And I'm wondering, um, uh, I'm assuming that these are hardy souls who, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in exchange for getting their tuition and their debt, their, college, their medical school debt waived, uh, you know, put in time in a, in a remote area. Um, are these the folks helping you with telemedicine too? And do you, do you always need that kind of idealistic person to be coming out to a rural area that's maybe on the surface less exciting or less remunerative seeming to someone who's you know, graduating from a major there, medical there's school? There's a lot happening behind the scenes that doesn't come to the surface. There has been a $125 million investment over the last 10 years in first building the infrastructure, the backbone, that will allow the technology to travel between sites. 650 clinics have been hooked up in this first cycle of uh, the new network for telemedicine. Parallel to that, we, we voted in for ourselves a uh, $50 million 
contribution to medical education in the state of California over a 10-year period to make sure that every graduate coming out of medical school today is familiar with uh, teletechnology and its uses. At the same time as a nation, we are moving in the direction of electronic uh, communication, whether those are electronic medical records, electronic health records. All of those things are fundamental tools and infrastructure that has to be built to be able to really begin to make that change. It was like going through the, val the valley of death to go and become a fully EMR in our clinic. And it was... EMR, electronic, uh, electronic medical, medical records. records. And um, on the other hand, now two years later where our last site was put on, there isn't a single provider that doesn't have some room to bitch, but also no single provider would go back to doing it on paper. And I think that the fact is that it's a recruitment tool for us. We get tremendous um, pushback if somebody recently graduated from a medical program comes to us and we don't have the technology that they've grown up with and we need to do that. I actually think that the commitment of the people who work in the safety net uh, has a lot to share with each other. As this technology has the ability to connect each other with each other, we can go ahead and use it to do that kind of talent sharing. We have a large AIDS program. We can't ever afford to have uh, an infectious disease doc or four of them. We have one that covers our area, but she shares call with three others in rural areas that also have Ryan White uh, uh, HIV programs. And they have lunch once every two, three weeks on over telemedicine just to talk to each other. And they can check out to each other when they go off on vacation or something like that. And we never feel like that our staff who sees all these patients don't have access to the the individual that they need to talk to, even if it doesn't happen to be the one that's within our own system. So it, I see a brighter future um, if we can make it through this next little change of getting to the other side. Um, I, I think you talked about, it was the phrase you used, a valley of death of yes. electronic medical uh. records, and, and, and I, I suspect that the fact that you have the scale of 10 clinics you know, helps. And I'm just wondering, uh, Dr. Sablon, you're a, a husband and wife team here. Um, and I think you told me that uh, the electricity is not that reliable in your neck of the woods. So, <laughs> so uh, does this seem like something, though, that maybe five years from now or something that you could see, you know, your clinic having something like this? Or does it take a certain level of investment that would be beyond you? I mean, what, what, what's your take well, on this? Right now, Michelle, it hopefully it won't be five years. We've already purchased our, our system, and we have the scheduling and the appointments um, all set up and the billing. So all we need is to finish off the rest. We, we have it all already. I, I think the president is requiring us to have that by 2014. So I don't think it'll be five years. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, uh, I want to make sure we leave plenty of time for, for questions here, but I, I did want to ask uh, Rebecca, uh, before we t turn to all of you, um, about uh, what you're seeing in the pipeline issues um, here in the Valley, uh, both on the positive and, and negative side. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I've, I've covered a bunch of neat pipeline programs. So those are the programs that sort of help to build or to you know, grow doctors for the San Joaquin Valley. There's the Doctors Academy, which starts training students um, in middle school and high school, starts getting them interested in health professions. And you know, it gets them interested in, they do internships and they just start working on their math and science and getting them interested in health fields so that maybe they will go to college and then maybe go to medical school or become interested in going into the health fields and coming back to the San Joaquin Valley so they're already familiar with, with the needs of the valley, the disparities, the culture of the valley so that they can work here in the valley and be committed to the issues. Um, there's a new program at UC Merced that works with UC Merced and the UC Davis Medical School. And this is actually the, their first co cohort is in, is in class right now. And they're also studying the needs of the valley and they'll, do, they'll study and they'll train the valley so that they can work here. And UCSF Fresno also has students do, res do their medical residency here so that with the idea that if you train them here and do they do their residency here, they might stay and practice here. And so I, I do see there's some neat programs that are really trying to train doctors who will care about the needs of the Valley and who will be familiar with the needs and who will want to stay here and, mm -hmm. and practice here. So. Well, I, I'd like to add, Michelle, that I, I, I think that those programs are really the answer. Anything that forces people to do things won't have, a, have continuity, and those programs are, are grassroots, and that's our hope for the future. There's also, the push, there's also a push for a, a medical school at UC Merced, and that can make a big difference, too, once that, if that, once that comes to fruition. And I think that this um, pipeline issue while it's been talked about for so many years, it's become particularly urgent now because we're really, um, you know, the Supreme Court willing at the cusp of a, a major expansion of um, healthcare access uh, to many more people. And for a region like this, where we just um, don't have the number of uh, primary care doctors and specialists, it's, it's going to be all the more urgent to find people who can, who can care for the population that's now um, in some ways outside of the, the safety net. Um, but I, I guess the one other thought I, I'd like to leave you with before we, we do take your questions is this idea of how do you create conditions for health in addition to for health care? And, um, you know, uh, if, if you're in a situation, um, and this was a, a story Marsha told me as I was leaving her, her clinic of, of one of her patients who's living in a, in a house uh, that she said to call it a house was sort of a, a glorification of it. Maybe even shack was was too high of a term, where there was water running from the roof and mold, and the children were just in a constant state of you know cold, flu, sinus infection. All the access to healthcare in the world isn't going to fix that. Um, that that comes down to more fundamental infrastructure issues. And so, um, I think that um, you know solving these sorts of problems really means uh, addressing both what the conditions are in the community and, and the access. So with that, I'd like to um, welcome your questions. Uh, Larry Rosell. At a hearing convened here in Fresno last week by uh, the California State Rural Health Association and Assemblymember Halderman, a, b a bunch of things were mentioned. One, one out of 60 people in the United States lives in rural California. And in California, there's something like 7 million people on Medi-Cal by January 2014, another five or six million are supposed to come on. What's gonna to have to happen in rural California to make that work? One of the things that we need to recognize is that when we say we're bringing people onto Medi-Cal, we are not bringing new people into the system. What we're doing is bringing people into a reimbursement system 
that creates sustainability. Uh, in general, and I know that we have lots of horror stories to tell, but America still takes care of you. They just often take care of you in the wrong place for the wrong kind of expense. You know, and so it isn't like all of a sudden we've got five million Californians that have never touched the healthcare system. We have five million Californians that have touched the healthcare system in probably the least reasonable path to healthcare, in the worst economic way to healthcare. And so I actually really look forward to that. In my area, everybody sooner or later gets to healthcare. Uh, but the fact that, that we don't get reimbursed for 25 or 30 percent of the people who touch us makes it really, really difficult to survive. And I think that this change that is being proposed will actually give the reimbursement to those providers to build a better infrastructure. Hopefully we'll see those same people that we already see but more further upstream to prevent the disasters that we, that we see. That's my hope, that the, we can take care of them in a much more efficient way. Hi, my name is Roger Mortimer. I'm the uh, interim chief of uh, family medicine with UCSF Fresno. So we're sort of <coughs> the far end of the pipeline. Um, I think it's important looking at rural health care that a lot of the primary care that's happening is coming from family medicine. There's no doubt that many specialists are needed, but the uh, in-the-trench labor are family physicians. Um, currently, those positions are going to be are at threat because of the way that graduate medical education is funded because it is largely a Medicare and a hospital based training and hospitals are caring less and less about primary care being their mission as opposed to inpatient care. Last week the Kern Medical Center announced that they were not accepting a intern class in family medicine. In all likelihood that entire program will be gone, go away and the funding shifted to other specialties that are more reimbursing for the hospital. Um, under uh, health care reform there are teaching health center dollars but they do not shore up programs in place, they simply want opening of new programs. Uh, to, to put all of this into the form of a question, um, do you see any um, future movement in changing the way that graduate medical education, the, the GME portion of the pipeline is funded to actually get more primary care into rural areas? I'll also add that for our own program, more than half of our graduates are in federally designated, designated medically underserved areas, and 10 of our last 11 graduates are practicing in Fresno County. I've gone to Washington a number of times on specifically that issue. Uh, but I, I would go as far as to say that the whole medical workforce is, needs opportunity to be trained. That uh, we are, I'm trying to break the teaching health center concept away from only being a residency program, but being a program that introduces everybody from the front desk to the medical assistant, to every other player in, de in healthcare delivery to the technology that's necessary. I'm finding that in our practices, we have as hard a time finding a medical assistant that has ever seen an EMR in their life or an electronic medical record. Or, um, and so building teaching health facilities that are practicums for the whole continuum, I think, is the, the best approach. Uh, 
I would love to talk to you about uh, seeing whether maybe some of your residents could do their residencies in community <laughs> health centers rather than at the hospitals, because ultimately that's where they're going to go ahead and be practicing. Do you see any uh, benefits, improvements in, in assisting rural health clinics do their job uh, under the new uh, Healthcare Reform Act? Specifically like transportation. Transportation is something that is paid to federally qualified health centers, but when you go to the privately owned rural clinics, it's not a reimbursable cost. And so, you see any changes that will impact in a positive way the delivery of healthcare in rural clinics? What happens to the rest of the healthcare delivery system as the focus is on FQHCs, on federally qualified health centers? And how do we reimburse, and how we all need each other uh, it, it isn't going to be the solution to just have one. I'm always so pleased when I find out uh, that there's a private rural health center somewhere taking on the same mission that we're in. Uh, I actually think that the unbundling of uh, that, that the managed care movement, the, what I think we can all get a glimpse of what Berwick was trying to say on the other side of the ravine, he was how the former head of Health and Human Services. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think that population-based uh, medicine uh, and the taking away the rules around the fact that the face of the doctor has been seen for every visit and getting reimbursed under a mechanism that pays for the health of a subset of the population is the fastest way to get to... Uh, being able to spend the resources for th in the most effective way. Right now, we are crippled by the fact that, that the only way you can be reimbursed uh, is to have a physician um, have a face-to-face. -face. By the way, I think it's also what ruins uh, the, the electronic medical record. The, the electronic medical record is polluted by billing, to be very honest about it. it is the biggest culprit in a tool that ought to really be made for communication between healthcare providers and potentially their patients on better healthcare. And we constantly run into some little rule change, blowing the whole thing apart, and then billing doesn't work or some other thing doesn't work. In no other civilized country do they pollute their <laughs> medical record system uh, with a billing system. Were you wanting to know specifically about transportation, though? Was that your central issue? Yeah, yeah. So the, the question is, under the new uh, regulations, once the new program is fully implemented, do you see that becoming uh, part of the uh, reimbursable cost for, mm -hmm. for Medicare and Medicare? Yes, I think that it will be a subset of the reimbursement. It will be part of the uh, per member per month reimbursement for it, and... Um, what's called other ambulatory services are an ingredient in coming up with what the rate should be. And Herman, looking at that on a broader picture too, like Michelle was talking about, I think it's our community's um, uh, onus also to improve the transportation. In Fireball, we have a very limited transportation, between, public transportation between Fireball and Fresno. And I, I see that type of community development as the real answer to, to that problem. Good evening. I'm Chuck Krugman. I'm with Mental Health America of the Central Valley. And uh, we provide services to uh, 
underserved communities, and much of our work is done with uh, working with agencies in the uh, rural areas that are underserved in both uh, ethnic communities and rural as well as other underserved communities as well. Uh, my uh, interest is especially within the uh, telemedicine issues that obviously it works very well in dealing with uh, physical conditions that are very obvious. But uh, I'm aware that when you're dealing with people that have various types of mental health issues and psychiatric conditions, that the uh, issue of, of the telemedicine of not having a face-to-face -face appointment with the doctor and the, and the TV cameras there can trigger various types of uh, reactions. I'm aware of a case that ha Fresno County is using telemedicine in the mental health services uh, locally, and I'm aware of a situation where the uh, patient just totally did not know how to react and respond with the uh, telemedicine, and this person was obviously, uh, had some very serious psychiatric issues. Well, I, to be very honest about it, it's just a tool. But our experience has been that it has lent itself to mental health more than almost any other subset. We are even at this point do, working with UC Davis on store and forward psychiatry, which seems like really far out. Active. What store and forward is, there are two different kinds of telemedicine. Um, for instance, in dermatology, the, the better way to do it is to take a camera and take a picture of what it is that you want the dermatologist to look at and in essence email that picture to the dermatologist and when she has the time to look at it to go ahead and give you a consult back in a secure environment. Th that's called store and forward. Then there is the face-to-face -face where you actually are interacting at the same time. Um, the, the newest uh, program that UC Davis is working on is store and forward psychiatry. There's actually a 10-minute interview that a trained medical assistant or nurse asks questions of this patient, and that 10 minutes is then viewed by the psychiatrists. Uh, we, are, we are so under psychiatried if there was such a word, you know, and access to mental health, most of it is being, most mental health is being delivered in the primary care setting by family practitioners and the alike. But there is a limit to how far a family practitioner feels comfortable in dealing with modern psychotropic drugs. And so what we've been doing is that we've done an exchange with our county. We said we'll take 1,700 of your stable mental health patients and we will go ahead and take care of them in the um, primary care setting. But you need to give us an equal number of access to your psychiatrist to go ahead and look at the pharmacology that our patients are seeing so that we can have a comfort level in continuing to provide them that way. And this store and forward is the next step in that. We see lots of telemedicine face-to-face. -face. And I agree that, you know, in the world of mental health, there are patients that, uh, there's a whole universe of patients. Some are completely inappropriate uh, for, for telemedicine, but I think that uh, we have found that it is an excellent tool, especially in rural areas where getting a hold of a psychiatrist is almost impossible. 
The side effect of telemedicine also is that it's a wonderful teaching tool because it often includes the primary care provider in the session. And the amount of teaching, let me give you one example. Uh, you wouldn't think that you can do orthopedics that way. But we, we had a situation where someone needed to go ahead and get a steroid shot in their knee. Well, the, the primary care provider on the rural end was not comfortable in sticking a needle into the knee. They hadn't either done it since residency or they hadn't done it in a long time. The comfort level of talking with an orthopedist who walked them through it and said, yeah, I feel down here and that's... They did that two times through telemedicine and now they feel quite comfortable in, in carrying that on. At first we had to look and see whether all of it, why were these things dropping off? And we're finding that things are dropping off because the primary care provider on the receiving end is becoming comfortable with and has gotten the reassurance from the expert that what they're doing is the right thing. And in psychiatry, that is a, a big one. Thank you all for coming. Have a great evening. Thank you.